I went to uh, I went to Berkeley Bowl and bought, the, bought those like multicolored carrots, you know. And I and I cut through one of the purple ones, and it was like bright orange on the inside and like purple on the outside, and I was like, this is amazing, you know. It was like one of those moments where I was just like lost in the beauty of this carrot, and. And I feel like that way today with y'all. I feel like I just feel so happy to be worshiping in God's house. I feel so happy to be digging into his word and praying for the world together. And I feel like I just want to be one of those people that have like that childlike thing where you just find delight in the, what becomes the common things, you know? And man, I just pray that over us. I feel like there's just so much every day that we could be kind of like lost in the delight in that just becomes kind of bland and normal and vanilla because we, you know, because we just cruise, cruise through. And so I pray that over us, that we would just be able to have like joy extracted out of like every meal. Man, food does not need to taste that good, people. But it does, because he loves us. And, uh, and so, yeah, I just bless you with that. It has nothing to do with where we're going today, but it has a, a lot to do with a lot of other things. All right, we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 26. Uh, for those of you who are new, welcome, welcome. Uh, we have been going through the book of Matthew for a few years now, and now we are coming towards the end, uh, literally a few years now. Um, and we are close to the end here, so we are going to crest over into chapter 27. And this has been a great journey through the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew is a biography of Jesus. It's one of four biographies of Jesus that sits in the Bible, in the New Testament. And, uh, and we've been going through it verse by verse, just studying the life of Jesus and getting lost in the wonder of who he is. And now we find ourselves at the end of the book, uh, which is his impending crucifixion. So he's been kind of marching steadily towards the cross. And in the last few weeks, we've been talking about how he went through this kind of like painstaking moment in the Garden of Gethsemane where he was asking his father, do I really need to do this? Um, and he's marching towards this moment that kind of ends up, you know, kind of dividing human history, if you will, into different eras. And on the other side of the cross is this wonderful era where he's opened up to humanity an ability to come and have a connection and a relationship with the living God. That's wild. This is right before that moment. This is where he's marching up to that moment where he knows what he needs to do, but he's submitting himself and giving himself into the hands of sinners in order to allow them to crucify him to take upon the sins of the world. And so we find him right at this moment where he's just been captured. So in the last passage, he admits to being the son of God. He admits to being the one that will be standing at the right hand of the father in power and in glory. And he refers back to these Old Testament prophecies that speak of this one who's going to set captives free and come in power and establish the rule of God's kingdom. And he says to the religious leaders at that time, I'm the one that the scriptures have been speaking of, and they say this is blasphemy. They rip their clothes. Like, I guess that's a thing back then. When you're really angry, you tear your clothes off. Um, it's really kind of weird when you think about it. But they rip their robes and, and, uh, and, and, and show of disgust from, from him saying this. And at that very moment, 
in this next passage, what we see is Peter, one of his three best friends, out in the courtyard sitting outside of the house where they're inside and all of this is going on. So we just saw what happened inside the house last week with Jesus interacting with the religious leaders. This week, we get to see what's happening outside in the courts with one of his best friends. So that's where we are. In verse 69, we read this. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before all of them. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway, so this is farther away from Jesus, where another servant girl saw him and said to the people, this was the fellow, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. I <laughs> love that. <laughs> then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered that the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned, he said. I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. This is your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. So usually when I'm speaking on a passage, I try to take one theme and tie it through the whole thing and share on that one thing. Uh, in this one, I have three different things that I think we can learn from this passage. So as we dig it apart and we, we find out what we can learn and how to do life together following Jesus, there are three different things um, that I want to talk about. So the first one is the massive amount of encouragement that the early church must have felt reading this account. It's kind of upside down to say that. It feels really sad. It feels really morbid. It's a horrible time for Peter. It's a worse time for Judas. It's not a good time for kind of like Jewish history. Uh, they end up, you know, falsely accusing this guy and killing him. And if you step back and if you think about this account from the, the perspective of the early church when they would have been reading this, they're living in the shadow of a church great as they're reading this. And it's this guy, Peter. Their perspective on Peter is not this. Their perspective on Peter is the rock of the church who Jesus said he would be. It's this guy full of boldness, full of wisdom, full of the power of the Holy Spirit. He is literally the one, the, 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 the like chief apostle over the church because he was the church, he, was, he ran the church in Jerusalem. And before there was a distribution and a, kind of like an explosion of this church all over the surrounding area because of persecution, he was the main leader. He was like the guy in the church. 
So if somebody had a theological question, they'd be like, oh yeah, Peter's your guy. Oh, you want a powerful message preached? Oh yeah, go to Peter. He is like, he preaches with such power and authority. It's amazing. Or you want somebody healed? This dude is like walking by and people are getting healed in his shadow. He doesn't even need to lay hands on them. This is their perspective of Peter. And so when they read this, they're like, wow. I guess this is like the making of the man part of the story, right? And I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm aware of my own weaknesses enough that the making of the man or the woman part of the story is the part that gives me so much peace. Like, I don't know if you guys feel that way, but in every movie, in every biography, I almost get bored after they become somebody amazing. It's the journey up to that point where they're wrestling and they're struggling and they're overcoming and they fail and then they, oh, and then they succeed. Like that wrestling part, I feel like I identify with it so much in my Christian walk. And I bet the early church was feeling a similar way, right? Like they're, they're living in the wake of this, this guy who flipped the world upside down and they're part of the early church. They're being persecuted. They're doing the best they can to live for the Lord. But when you read the epistles of Paul, and the letters that he's sending out to the church, there's some stuff like Peter-like moments going on in the early church. You know, you read 1 Corinthians, for example, and it's like, wow, signs and wonders are exploding through this church, but Paul's like, y'all don't know how to love. Like, you guys gotta figure out how to love. It's not just about power in the kingdom, it's about love. Like, figure this thing out. And so when we read the beautiful love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, he's not just writing that because he's inspired to be a poet or like, you know, knew we'd need it for weddings. <laughs> he's, he's, he's writing that because he was addressing something very specific in that time that they were not operating in that way. Don't just be a clanging gong or a cymbal in a service and like operate in power and speak in tongues and do all this stuff. Like learn how to love one another. And so the church was a mess. And, and they were reading this, going, oh, wow. Like, along Peter's journey, he was a mess too. And the amount of comfort that I have to imagine that that brought them uh, must have been profound. There's, um, there's this woman named Heidi Baker. Many, of the, many people in the room know her. If you don't, she's an amazing, amazing follower of Jesus. She lives in Mozambique with her family, and they've started an orphanage that is, like, changing that nation. So they do church planting, but they also adopt pretty much any kid that would want to come to them. And then they trust the Lord for supernatural provision over those kids. So they, they father and mother something like 7,000 kids. Uh, they've planted all these churches all over Mozambique. She is amazing in Christ. And I was listening to her preach once, and she said this. She said, if I remember this correctly, this is what I heard anyway. I have never heard the Lord speak to me and I've disobeyed. And there's like, yes, exactly. There's two responses from me like, wow, that's amazing. And wow, that's not me. You know? I was like, I was like, well, that makes sense why Mozambique is being changed under, you know, under your leadership, but that does not give me any confidence that I can go and change Mozambique. Like, so, yes, thank you. Thank you for making me feel awful in your inspirational moment. <laughs> but I feel, I feel like that, right? Like, 
if the standard was perfection, like if I knew I had to be perfect, or if I knew like every time that the Lord told me to do something, if I had to do it just right, or there was no second chances, or third chances, or fourth chances, or fifth chances, or sixth, or seven in our Jesus, in our Lord, in our Savior, that would be terrible. I would be done. Like, I would have been done before I got started. But I just want to remind us that we serve an amazingly gracious God. An amazingly gracious God. And even in his stories, in his own biography, he highlights the person who had walked hand in hand with him for three years, got to see him up close and personal do crazy things, got to see the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus was on this mountain and he's instantly turned into his glorified form where his robes turned lightning white. And then a booming voice comes from the sky saying, this is my son, listen to him. This is the guy in this moment who I love how it's a servant girl. Twice, not just once. It's a servant girl twice. This is like the lowest form of society in this time. Talk about the least social pressure you could imagine. Like that's what this represents in the text, that this is a servant girl. And he buckles twice right after the chapter where he pulls out a sword and cuts the dude's ear off saying that he'd die for Jesus. And I look at that and I go, yeah, yes. Like there's so much of my discipleship that I feel like I identify with that that it gives me a lot of peace and strength and so much more with the early church because they were living in the after of Peter. To me, this would be the equivalent of, you know, listening to the rough journey for some of my spiritual heroes of this day, right? So like, man, when Bill Johnson like failed along the way or when Heidi, if she ever failed along the way or like, <laughs> you know, like, all of these people because I see their life, I experience their ministry, I see what it's doing to the earth and I go, well, that person probably sits in a different category. And you know what's crazy is, We've had uh, probably a disproportionate amount of like big name speakers come to our small little church. I don't know if it's Berkeley, because like, you know, people want to come to Berkeley, or if it's uh, the grace of God or whatever it is. But there's something interesting that starts to happen when you start to get really close to the big name speakers, because we usually have like lunch with them and like pray with them beforehand and stuff. They're just people, they're just people. And they're amazing people. Like, we had lunch with Lauren Cunningham one time. Got to hear him telling his stories. He, he started this group called YWAM. Um, some of you have heard it. It's like probably one of the most effective missions organizations in history. Um, and he's telling his stories and he's talking about it. But as he's doing so, it was just a simple guy who trusted God. It was a simple guy who had struggles. It was a simple guy who went to work every day. It was a simple guy who, you know, kept choosing in for Christ. And there was something so healthy sitting at that table listening to this guy go, yeah, I remember when we bought a billion-dollar cruise ship so that we could start Mercy Ships. Like, Mercy Ships is this, is this cruise ship that they bought. It's literally this gigantic cruise ship, and all these doctors get on this cruise ship, and then they go bank somewhere in like Africa or somewhere extremely poor 
and then people come and get their cleft lips healed or come and you know, have surgeries that they can't get otherwise, and they fill this cruise ship with medical help in the name and the power of Jesus. This is amazing to hear Lauren Cunningham's before stories where it's the making of the guy who has enough faith to operate where he's believing God for a billion-dollar cruise ship. Man, that is us. That's us. We can't put Peter in another category. We can't put them in another category. I put Heidi in another category, but it's wrong. (laughs) Don't do it. But I just want to, like, remind us, this is the story of somebody who went through something that, like, I don't know, can you recover from something like this? And the answer is yes. The answer is absolutely yes. So whether we've, like, never walked with Christ and we're wondering, wow, can he forgive us of our past? Or whether it was, like, moral failure this morning— We serve this crazy God who shed his blood such that he could make a way for even us to change the world, for even us to carry a significant place in his kingdom, for even us, like the rock of the church that he called Peter, to follow in these footsteps and to have moments where you're down like this and then to go on and do unreal things. That's the God we serve. He's crazy. He's upside down. He doesn't make sense a lot of times. But man, it gives me a ton of peace of mind to see Peter in his bad moment. Sorry, Peter. Number two, what we see in here is that it seems like Peter didn't do well in this moment because he was unprepared for this moment. There was no version of his discipleship that included the cross. That's why Peter goes to cut somebody's ear off in one second. I will die for you, Lord. And then in the next second, he's denying that he ever knew him to the servant girls. How can that happen? How could he be bold as a lion in one situation and then scared, you know, just terrified in the next situation? How does that happen? I think getting into the, like, the mental... The, the, the part of Peter's mental state here, I feel like he's having a real-time theology struggle in this courtyard. He was not having a real-time theology struggle in the garden. He knows who his Lord is in the garden, and he's like, I will die for you. He doesn't know who his Lord is in the courtyard where he's surrendered himself to the authorities. He's having a real-time theology struggle, and because he's working through it in the moment, in his moment of crisis, he doesn't have any footing, and he buckles. And I think similarly to, to, to our lives, the, the cornerstone moment that Peter is missing here is that his discipleship And what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus, what it looks to follow in his footsteps is that there's a self-sacrifice, a surrender, a laying down our lives, a suffering aspect to the discipleship of Christ that is undeniable and that we just can't escape. It's this strange kind of upside-down invitation where Jesus says, abundant life is found in me, 
And then he says, follow me to the death, to this cross. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But Peter's entering this really hard situation, not having a category in his thinking of what it looks like to choose in to follow Jesus is self-sacrifice and obedience ultimately, in some cases, unto death. And so I think because of that, he's having this crisis theology moment. And he doesn't even remember the words of his Lord, in our case, just a chapter before, in his case, probably just a couple weeks before, where he says over and over and over again, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to lay down my life for your sins. Jesus said it over and over and over again to his disciples. But in this moment, somehow he's in such a theological spin that he has no grounding left. And I think I just want to remind us that theology done right is both preposterous and mysterious. I feel like there needs to be this continued category in our thinking as we walk with God that's just a category for the I have no idea. For anybody who's walked with Jesus and been like serious about theology before, you know that's the chuckles in the room. Because as hard as you try to get to know him and as much as you push in and as much as the Bible that you read, there's just these moments where things in life happen or you read something in the text or you have a moment with God or he speaks something to you and you're just like, yeah, I don't know where, I don't know where to put that. I don't know what to do with that. And it reminded me, as I was thinking about this, that this like block that we need to reserve in our discipleship for the mysterious Sounds a whole lot like Proverbs chapter 3 where it says, hey, don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Again, I don't think that God writes this stuff in there to be in a picture frame, you know, for hard times or something like that. Like, he, he puts this stuff in here because there's going to be moments in life where you are leaning on your own understanding and it's not bearing fruit. And so it's kind of like, I want to have this moment around our discipleship that I think is highlighted in this passage where we say, okay, discipleship number one, there's probably going to be suffering involved in it. Like, he'll give you an abiding joy to triumph through it, but the circumstances that you'll go through, like, his invitation is to follow him into self-sacrificial love. And then number two is, and by the way, don't be surprised if you're wildly confused along the way and you don't know exactly what he's doing because the invitation to discipleship with Jesus is primarily, first and foremost, an invitation into faith. It's primarily, first and foremost, an invitation into faith. And what faith is, is faith is, I trust you. Faith is not as I understand everything you're doing and I choose to follow you because I understand everything. Faith is, I have no idea what you're doing, and I choose you anyway, because you alone hold the keys to eternal life. And Peter is having a moment in both of these areas, just crashing in on him at a single moment where he's like, I don't get this at all. I don't understand at all what's happening right now. I thought you were going to be warrior king, and you're laying your life down to death. 
I thought this was going to be like the start of God's kingdom on the earth, and this looks like the, in, the, the, the end of God's king on the earth. Like this, is, this is beyond my logical understanding. And I think there were so many times in the disciples' life where if they were relying on their own understanding, they just missed it each time. But man, this is so hard for us, right? Like this is so stinking hard for us to have there be an active place of lack of understanding and mystery, but continue to choose in. But that's discipleship. Again, I feel like this would be incredibly encouraging to the early church. It's not like the mystery ended when the Holy Spirit descended upon the church and 3,000 people were saved in a single day. Not too far after Jesus ascends and goes to heaven and the early church experiences renewal by the power of the Spirit, does Stephen, one of the leaders in the church, get stoned and killed right there? So like think about this crazy juxtaposition that they're living through where there's like power, signs, wonders, authority, you know, speaking and preaching in ways that they didn't even, like had never comprehended. Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 how he's unveiling wisdom that was longed for by the prophets of old. This is what the church is living through. Like, whoa, this is what God's doing. He's active. He's alive. People are getting delivered, set free. You know, everybody gave away their money and put it into a big pile and everyone was living in like a semi-socialist commune. You know, like, it's like, it's like active. It's alive. It's just like, God is moving crazy. And then one of the leaders gets stoned and you're like, wait, what? That just doesn't, I just don't get it. Like, why? Would God raise the dead over here and then allow one of his leaders to get killed over here? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. And so the invitation to discipleship is first and foremost, like I said, by faith, self-sacrifice, but also one into mystery. I feel like there's this beautiful release that happens at some point in our walks with God where we stop demanding answers for things. There's this turning point, and it, it's freedom. It's freedom from having to understand. It doesn't mean the version of Christianity where you throw your brain out, right? It's not that version. But you can be incredibly well-educated on, you know, why creation makes a ton of sense through science, and you can be deep in theology, and you can understand apologetics through and through, but it'll never remove the need for faith at the end of the day. I remember before I had experienced real active miracles uh, in my Christian life, I remember thinking to myself, the first time I see the first miracle, that'll be it. I'll have like the boldest faith you've ever seen in your life. Like one miracle, give me one. And it'll be like forevermore, I will never deny or never question because I've seen that one miracle, right? That is like totally not true. <laughs> it is not true at all. But there's this, there's this beautiful invitation to lean not on our understanding. And that if we step into it, it's freedom. It's freedom. I look at the way my kids operate. They don't know anything that's going on. <laughs> Ever. They are so unbelievably caught in the moment. 
right? Like they just live in right now all the time. They're not thinking about their next meal. They're not thinking about the clothes that they need for tomorrow. They're not thinking about the ride to school or their protection or earthquakes or like, (laughs) you know what I mean? It's like, how much stuff do we have going on? And the reason why they can have that peaceful existence and live chilling in the moment is because they don't lean on their own understanding. They're so used to living in an existence where they have no idea what's going on, right? Like everything is learned every day. It's like, whoa, like that's amazing. A bee is flying through the air, you know, and it's like, it's just anything. But what a beautiful existence, right? Like that childlikeness is the invitation And it's the picture that God gives us as to what it looks like to crest over from life living in the natural, in the boring realm, over into the exciting existence, which is his kingdom. He says you can't even enter if you don't enter like a child. And what he's talking about there is a release of your understanding and an embracing into the Father's promises and an embracing into his closeness and embracing into his character of falling into the arms of a God that will they'll always be there and always protect us and always provide for us. So that's number one. That's number two. The third thing that we have to call out if we read this passage is that we cannot allow our religion to become weird. This is a, a pure directive from the Lord. Do not allow your religion to become weird. What in the world is going on with these religious authorities? I am so baffled by this whole thing. They pay one of Jesus' disciples to betray him. They then bribe people to tell lies about Jesus and what he said to create false testimony so that they can then incriminate him and kill him And then in this passage, we read, in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans on how to execute Jesus. So they bound him, led him away, handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Jesus comes in, who's the betrayer. He's seized with remorse, and he says, I've sinned, I've betrayed in his blood. They say, what's this to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So, the through, so Judas, Judas was thr- thrown, throws the money in the temple. He leaves and goes away and hangs himself. I forgot to include it in this passage. The very next few verses, they say, well, we can't keep this money. This is blood money. And it says in the law that you're not allowed to keep blood money. And so what we're going to do with this money is we're going to buy a field. And then, you know, that won't technically be us putting it in the church treasury or the temple treasury, we'll buy a field with it, and then we'll be good on, the, on that law part of things. What? What happened to their religion? What in the world is going on in these people's thinking that think that they can do all of this stuff, and then because they don't take the ransom money back, but they buy a field with it, and it's like, okay, we're in good standing with God. Like, we're, we're, we're a good place. Like, what in the world happens here? 
I feel like this doesn't feel all that different, however, from other things that I've experienced in church history. Right? Like, how about the pastor who's leading the church but is found in sexual indiscretions for years? How does this happen? Where that you're getting up in front of the people of God for years with all of this sin in your life. Like, how, I don't, how does that happen? It happens a lot. How does it happen that we get so caught up with the minutia detail about like, okay, in the church, it's only allowed to dance a little bit. But if you raise your hands over shoulder height, then that's inappropriate, right? Here's okay, down where your elbows are by your sides. But if you go up here, that's trouble. Like, these are literally the conversations that happen in the body of Christ all the time. People that come to church every Sunday because that's what you do as a Christian, but their heart is so far from Jesus they don't tithe, they don't serve, they don't show up to anything else. It's like you come in on Sunday and this is what it looks like to be a Christian and then you like go out and live like the world. Like, what? And I think it's healthy for us to stop and step back and say, similar to Peter, let's just like identify with it for a second and not say, oh, those wicked people over there. And just get in the place of humility and say like, how does that happen? How does that happen where that's allowed? Because it's been happening as long as the people of God have existed. I was reading through the scripture and I thought of Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58 is this, this part where God gives this prophecy to the people of God and he says, effectively, he says, you guys are fasting, but the kind of fast that you're in right now I don't even see what's going on there. It's not pleasing to me. It doesn't move me. You know, you're basically just starving yourself of food. In other words, you've made fasting the thing that classifies you in the bucket of righteousness. And so there can be all of this smut in another area of your life, and that's okay. And this is how this happens. The way that this happens is that somehow we categorize certain things as the categorization of righteousness is right here. And as long as I'm doing well in this category, then my life over here can look like garbage and I'm okay. I just want to educate us on like, it's perplexing, but if we step back, what's happening here is there's a narrow definition of righteousness you do well in these areas, and you're good. And then in over, over in these areas, your true heart state is revealed with what's going on. So I don't know if, like, the pastors that I was mentioning, have they, tr have they convinced themselves that, like, man, look at all the fruit in my ministry. Like, yeah, this stuff's going on over here, but everybody's got struggles. And so, like, you know, or is it, like, with, with the people in Isaiah 58, God says in verse 6, he says, this isn't the kind of fast that I've chosen. The kind of fast that I've chosen is to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to break every yoke. 
It's to share your food with the hungry. It's to provide the poor wanderer with shelter. When you see the naked, to clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. He's like, hey, your definition of righteousness over here that has to do with all this fasting and like tithing your herbs. He's <laughs> like, you go out to your garden and you sniff off some parsley and you're like, all right, a tenth for the Lord, you know? Like, I'm really serious about this thing. They were doing all that, but their, their heart is totally far from the poor and the persecuted and those who are going through struggles amongst their midst. They're right around people that God wants to love through their hand and their hearts are totally far from him. But then you go into 1 John chapter 3 and we see it ascend. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? In James 2, it says, what good is it, brothers and sisters, if somebody claims to have faith but has no deeds? All right, let's stop here for a second. For a long time, I'll tell you what the church today has categorized as the version of righteousness that I believe, so this is my opinion, that I believe is the version of what we just read in Isaiah 58 and in other places. That you can have faith without works and that that credits to you righteousness. In the 1500s, Martin Luther came out and he made this strong stand against what was going on in the church at the time. And he said, no, 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 you guys are missing it. You think it's all about these works. You think it's all about these various things that are going on. He goes, it's not about that. It's about faith. And this is true. It is about faith. But the version of the category of righteousness that I think we can stand on but then have our life be a mess like we're talking about here is this one where you can, have you can have faith, but you can have no works. I think it's like totally not biblical in any regard. And so we're reading in James chapter 2, it says, if somebody claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such a faith save them? In other words, are you credited righteousness for that? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say to you, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. I will show you my faith by my deeds. So we've been talking about like these various kind of aspects of what discipleship with Christ looks like. The final one that I'd like to just kind of introduce through this passage and throw out there is like the Pharisees had found themselves in a situation where they could have a repentant Judas right in front of them. Right in front, a repentant Judas. I've done wrong. Repentance is turning around and by actions changing what you're doing. He throws the money that he took back at them. He's like, I don't want this money. Like, I'm turning my ways. I want, I realize what I've done is wrong. Do you realize that good religious leaders probably could have restored Judas right there? He has his breakdown moment. And our Christ is plenty forgiven to, forgiving to even restore Judas. 
and he's having his moment, and what do the Pharisees say to him? This is your problem. Like, what does this have to do with us? They could not care less. Somehow they have faith in the God of Israel. Somehow they're religious leaders. Somehow they've memorized his text, but somehow they have no idea that what the true outcropping and the true display of faith is, is if you believe in God, then you're going to do the things that he loves. And the things that he loves more than anything else is for us to care for the people around us that are in need. Period. You cannot escape it biblically. That the evidence of your faith is that you love one another. It is, it's everywhere. And I think when we hear it as disciples of Christ, we're like, yes, that is my Messiah. That is my Savior. That's the one that I want to follow. Because in theory, somebody who lives like that is like, oh, that's the type of person that I want to be. And I think, I just want to remind us here that like, we get the privilege of being filled with his Holy Spirit for good works. We get faith in Christ, filled with his Spirit, so that we can live Isaiah 58, which I was just reading, so that we can loose the chains of injustice, so that we can untie the cords of the yoke, so that we can set the oppressed free, so that we can feed the hungry, so that we can heal their sicknesses, so that we can preach good news to those who need to hear it. All of this stuff is the privilege of discipleship by the power of the Holy Spirit. But I just remind us, like, we cannot narrowly define righteousness by anything but sitting under the blood of Jesus. Primarily, number one, it is by grace. It is by our faith in the, in the finished work of Jesus Christ on that cross for us as people who were lost in sin with no idea as to how fine God. And he bursts through and make a way for us. And as we believe on him, then the life that we choose into by that belief is one where we live as he lived and we operate as he operates. And that is, you will know my disciples because you love one another. It is in John 15, he says, this is my command. He makes it super simple. This is my command. You want to love me well? This is my command. Love one another. And so it's one of those moments where, like, for myself too, we need to stop and have moments where we challenge ourselves and be like, are we doing this thing? Have we narrowly defined righteousness in a way that makes us feel comfortable? Or can we, like, push ourselves and say, yes, what does the expression of Christ's love through my life look like now, tangibly? What does it look like? What did it look like yesterday? What does it look like today? What does it look like tomorrow? How have I set this whole thing up such that I'm loving my Savior and I'm following in his ways in practical ways because his command is to love one another? And then we can stand there with confidence and say, I know I have faith because I love. I know I have faith because I've chosen to live my life like this, and this life doesn't make any sense except for the fact that he's the one that I'm following. And so we have these three areas of discipleship that are highlighted in this passage. The first one is just the encouragement that the early church must have felt reading Peter's weaknesses. 
right? Like he goes through this time where he's wrestling and all they know is the, the Herculean guy after the fact. They don't know the guy up, you know, beforehand and they get to witness that. And that should be encouraging, encouragement to us. The second one is Peter was unprepared because there was no version of his discipleship that included the cross. And so there's this great passage in the Gospels where it's like, hey, before you choose discipleship, just like make sure, like a smart builder, that you count the cost. Because you don't want to get halfway done with the building and realize like, oh, what have I done? I don't have the resources I need to finish the building. So before you do it, just say like, okay, do I want to do this thing or do I not want to do this thing? And then the last piece is don't let church get weird. (laughs) Amen. All right, let's worship together. Can I get the worship team to come up? So what we're going to do now is we're going to respond to anything that the Lord was doing during that talk. We always leave time for this at the end of the message because we don't want to just be hearers of the word. We want to respond immediately and invite God into the areas that he was highlighting. That's the whole thing. We come into this setting because we open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit and we say, Holy Spirit, let's do life together. And so when he speaks, we then agree with him afterwards and say, great, like come into that part of my life that we were just talking about in that sermon or what, that part that, that Ryan mentioned, that one, that one, what's going on there, God? I invite you into that area. Like, move me in that place. And so we invite the work of the Lord in after he has spoken to us in this time. So we're going to make space for that. There's going to be people over here that are willing to pray for you should you want to get prayer. And I will launch us into a time of worship with some prayer.